Brother Trey will ask us to mark song 58, and we'll sing that at the appropriate time at the conclusion of the lesson this evening. How often some of the messages of these songs that we've just sung tonight remind us of the greatness, of course, of the Word of God, the power of the Christ, and the great blessings that He has afforded to each of us as those that are His faithful children. The gratefulness that, in fact, fills our hearts in regard to all of that points us so lovingly to the book of Revelation. For it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, that one who suffered so greatly upon the cross, who in fact shed his blood to purchase the church. He opened, if you please, lifted the veil and allowed us to see in the revelation some marvelous matters, challenging us to ever be mindful and faithful to overcome so that we can enjoy the blessings revealed in this book. It is an amazing consideration that you and I come to the third portion of our study, and that, of course, will be another set of lessons to those seven churches in particular. As you and I noted in the last lesson, we highlighted the features of three of the seven churches in Asia. As these individual and somewhat brief letters were written to them, we came to appreciate first the letter to Ephesus. And in that letter, we noticed they were commended for those matters worthy of commendation, highlighted in particular that they did recognize those deeds of the Nicolaitans and in fact hated such. Furthermore, they were commended so beautifully for trying those that claimed to be apostles but found them false. But the Lord did say that they had left their first love. And for that, they were admonished to repent and do the first works. And of course, upon hearing that, they would be blessed mightily. Nextly, that church at Smyrna. They too were in fact reminded of some great things and not the least of which was this. Their works were known as was true of all the others. And also to them it was especially noted that they were going to endure some tremendous persecution for that period of ten days as the Lord described it. But they were admonished to be faithful unto death and they would receive in fact the crown of life. And then came the church at Pergamos. It was to that congregation too, in fact, commendation deserved where it was in fact noted. It was to them that the Lord said, I know that you dwell where Satan's seed is. And I understand and know very well that those difficult times are in fact about you, even Antipas, my faithful martyr. But then he also quickly made note he had something against them as well. They not only tolerated and in fact upheld that doctrine of Balaam, but even there were those who held the doctrine of the, of the Nicolaitans there. They were told again that they needed to repent and they needed to return to that which was a right standing before God. That was the end of our time on that first lesson and that brings us tonight to the next four churches as well. We come this evening beginning in chapter number 2 to the church at Thyatira. It is to be noted concerning all of them. We noted that some things were common amongst the letters. The Lord identified Himself in a way that was particularly meaningful to that church, in a way that would have been mindful of that which was not only worthy to be noted, but also reminded them of why they should take note of their errors. It was to be no different at Thyatira. I would invite your attention as we notice in Revelation 2 some of the things written to that church at Thyatira. I've listed here some of that which might be noted. First of all, as far as its placement, Thyatira was positioned about 35 miles southeast of Pergamos. It was well known for some things, not the least of which was this. 
well known as a center in the textile industry where that making and the distribution of purple took place. We even remember a lady named Lydia who in Acts 16 was also from Thyatira. And it was there that, of course, she came to know and understand and obey the words of the Apostle Paul. I would invite you to note with me what the Lord said to this church at Thyatira. Beginning in Revelation chapter 2, verse number 18. And unto the church, the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and patience, and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Pausing only at that point, one couldn't help but gain a rather positive feeling about the church at Thyatira. The Lord admitted that I know thy works, and he went on to very powerfully say, as he spoke of their works, their faith, their love, and their service. And finally, he even affirmed the last is more than the first. It should be the goal of any church and any Christian for the last works to be more than the first so that they would have matured, they would have advanced, they would have grown, they would have moved beyond that which they first would have known. With regard to those statements, as positive as they are, we now notice the Lord was not finished as He spoke to the church at Thyatira. Beginning in verse number 20. He said, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, and teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent." Of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Pausing at the conclusion of verse 23, we notice a few of these matters that were expressly stated to that church at Thyatira. In particular, isn't it amazing? that there is made mention of this particular woman, this woman whose name was here likened unto Jezebel. With regard to her, it says, Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel. The Lord had a particular person in mind. It, of course, was a woman, and of her it was called Jezebel. As you can give some thought to what was here noted on the slide, it is a fantastic thing to notice that the Lord was ever mindful of that church in Thyatira and He was aware of what this lady, this woman did, that which she taught and the way that she even seduced and misled those that were members of the church. That perhaps would be a good place to interject some lessons for us today. As we've often noted... These letters, as meaningful as they were to these first century churches, they certainly have meaning for us. They have lessons in them for us. And one of them here would be the importance of leadership, proper leadership of the church. The church in Thyatira suffered from a dearth of proper leadership. They tolerated. The text says, you'll notice, they suffered that woman Jezebel. There should have been enough, enough leadership 
enough love for the truth among the congregation at large to, in fact, put this person in her place. But yet they tolerated, they suffered her. And isn't that often the way that falsehood will first get a toehold at a place where things begin to develop from what seems to be such an innocent and small germ, and yet it grows and germinates to become ultimately what will engulf the entire congregation. So often the New Testament reminds us about those elders, the task that they have. Hebrews 13, 7, verse 17 reminds us of this. Obey them which have the rule over you. When you and I appreciate the work of the elder, it is not a simplistic task. They have a great responsibility to be mindful of that which is taught, that which is practiced, and to ever be sure that as nearly as they can set it forth, that that which is taught and set forth in all of our classes and the activities of the church are strictly in accordance to all that is revealed in the Word of God. In Titus 1 verse number 9, as Paul listed the qualifications of elders, among them is this, that they would be able to stop the mouths of the gainsayers. That is, their knowledge of the truth, their ability to set it forth in clarion recognition of the way God has revealed it. They should be able with sound and valid argument to stop the mouths of those that would oppose it. No wonder the elder in his position is lifted so highly in the Word of God. It is along that line that perhaps a secondary lesson from the church at Thyatira would be this. We've noted they suffered Jezebel and allowed her seduction of the children that were there present, the members of that body. What does that say about what they failed to do? The New Testament fully encourages proper disfellowship of those that walk disorderly. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6 puts it as a command. I command thee, Paul wrote, to disfellowship those that walk not according to the rule that I have delivered unto you. And so it was Thyatira should have disfellowshiped this Jezebel. They should not have tolerated her seduction of the servants, members of the church there, and have allowed her to lead them along the pathway of destruction. And so it remains today. We are given commandment also to disfellowship those who will not hearken and listen to the teaching of the Word of God, but who continue to walk in that way that's disorderly. Paul wrote to the church in Rome in Romans 16 verse 17, particularly to mark them that walk in ways contrary to the way that I've revealed and, in fact, avoid them. As one gives thought to marking and avoiding, that is, in fact, along that line of disfellowship, isn't it? How important it is to ever safeguard the truth. And the church at Thyatira failed on that account. No wonder they were admonished. No wonder they were rebuked and reproved. As you can see, we stopped reading at verses 22 and 23. Let's continue, though, to notice what else the Lord told them. Beginning in verse 24, But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which I have already but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. 
and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers even as I received of my father and I will give him the morning star he that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches was there still reason for hope at Thyatira absolutely they were admonished, hold fast what little there is that remains, and they would then be able to allow that also to grow and to nourish and to become that which would allow them to overcome. How important it is for us to learn the valiant lessons from Thyatira as well. As you can see on this slide, and also the following one, here's again a brief map that shows you at least roughly where these seven churches were. You could perhaps see Thyatira positioned somewhat lower and to the right as you look at that map from Pergamos, which was that top one we noted last Sunday evening. Beyond Pergamos and beyond Thyatira, we come, of course, next to Sardis. As Revelation chapter 3 opens, we notice this letter is much briefer than the one that we had just read to Thyatira. Beginning in verse number 1, "...and unto the angel of the church at Sardis write..." These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest. And we'll pause there. We begin to notice that the Lord jumps somewhat immediately into his direct message, not lingering too long to identify himself. He simply says, He is the one that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That does sound somewhat similar to the way the introduction to the church at Ephesus read. Also holding the seven stars. But the Lord quickly says, There is a name that you live, but the sentence wasn't ended. For He says, Art dead. The church in Sardis, rather directly and unambiguously, was told that despite the fact there's the name that you claim to live, you are dead. Amazingly, we begin to notice some of these statements about the church at Sardis. The city of Sardis was one of the chief cities in the Roman Empire, nestled about 35 miles south of Thyatira. Like Ephesus, it was also known as a place for the worship of Diana, the goddess Diana, and also a location for one of those imperial temples in the ancient Roman Empire. In fairness to the city of Sardis, we begin to see somewhat of a similarity to Ephesus. They were commended, as you'll notice in verses 3 and 4. There were a few in Sardis that had not defiled their garments. The Lord, we see, was ever fair. He commended where commendation and compliment was needful and also deserved, but He was also quick to reprove when also that was needed. One of the things the Bible always reminds us, doesn't it, is that God is no respecter of persons. To those deserving of commendation, they shall be commended. But to those deserving of rebuke because of sin and error, the Lord will make mention of that as well. It was to the church in Sardis. They were reproved for being dead. How sad it is to contemplate the church in Sardis. Perhaps they had a location where the name was on the outside of the building, but you walk inside and they were dead. Where was the love for the Lord? Where was the zeal and ardent fervor for the cause of the Master? Where was their understanding of the cross and how it prompted them to serve with astute 
powerful love, it seems to have been completely missing. They may have gone through the motions of worship. They may have gone through the ritual or tradition of what their fathers and others had done. But it simply says they were dead. It's no wonder the Lord rebuked them. In verse number 2 it says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. There was still enough so that they could have held on to that and moved forward to again move in that direction of rightness and that direction of strength. But yet, he says, I have not found thy works perfect. The American Standard renders that in a way that's closer to the original Greek when it says, I have found no works of thine fulfilled. That gives us a hint that it may well be that Sardis had great intentions. Sardis may have been a place where there was much intention to do a great number of good, but yet they did not fulfill and complete the intention that they had started. Good intentions do not, in fact, bring one to a satisfactory place before God. It requires works. The Lord said, I know that works. With regard to Sardis, no wonder these following comments are so vital for you and me today at the church at Pippin. Where do you and I stand? We understand God is not pleased with a church that's dead. He wants one that's alive unto Him. One that in fact not only is alive in regard to where we meet here, but alive day by day in where we stand for the truth. When others see you and me tomorrow or Tuesday, do they recognize that this one is not hypocritical, but rather is one who strives to live so that there truly is not death? In fairness to all of that, consider what some things the Lord stated. Isn't it true that spiritual life demands more than just a name? Oh, it's true. We've been given a name, that worthy name of the Christian, that worthy name highlighted in the New Testament. But didn't Jesus say, beginning in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter in the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, for many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. It is remarkable, isn't it, that on that occasion the Lord said there will be some who would claim, I did many things in your name. But yet the Lord said, I never knew you. That helps us appreciate, doesn't it, the importance of always striving to not only wear that name, but to do so with the manifestation of all that goes with it. You can see these other verses, such as Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, when Paul wrote to them, that they would always live in such a way, not conforming to this world, but transformed, of course, by the renewing of their mind. We might be reminded from Sardis of how important that is, for God isn't satisfied with anything less. As you notice the closing thought at Sardis, perhaps one final lesson from that church. Verse 5, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Perhaps no clearer statement in all the Bible of the possibility of one who once was saved to becoming lost. The Lord said about blotting a name out of the book of life. 
you and I know that so often in this world there are those who teach that once names are entered into that, li- into that book, they can never be removed. Those of the once saved, always saved thinking. But yet the Lord clearly affirmed here that names can be blotted out of that book. Those who once were saved and begin to live unwisely, begin to live sinfully, begin to lose fervor and ardency with regard to the faith, and who walk in a disorderly fashion, their names can be blotted out and will be blotted out of that book. The Lord said to the church at Sardis, He that overcometh. There's the key word in the book again. The need for you and me to overcome all that Satan throws at us, Overcome it, of course, through the agency and power of the Word and the realization of the Christ and to live faithfully unto that calling which has been administered to us. To the church in Sardis, we leave that and move to Philadelphia. To the church in Philadelphia, we begin to see in verse number 7 some statements that remind us of some other valiant lessons from this little letter. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, this is verses 7 and following, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. The Lord identified himself uniquely to the church at Philadelphia. We know the word Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love. And so this church, in fact, was known for some things. Here are some initial thoughts. First, Philadelphia was positioned on the main road roughly 20 miles east of Sardis. It was known as a rather fertile place for the growing of a number of things, but perhaps principally that of grapes. Philadelphia was thus positioned rather distantly inward, if you please, compared to some of these other cities. Jesus identified Himself as that one that's both holy and true. He never asserts or speaks that which is false. He never encourages that which is not wholesome and good, but rather the one with the key of David, and finally, that one who is able to open and no man can shut, also to shut and no man can open. To the church at Philadelphia, we encounter a very beautiful and yet brief lesson. As we see some of the following things, they were commended for keeping the word in the following language. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Again, we see a beautiful commendation. They had not denied the the Son of God, and they had kept His word. That alone speaks volumes about the church at Philadelphia, doesn't it? But what's more... We quickly notice in verse number 9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. The church at Philadelphia, though some of the circumstances surrounding them would be difficult, because Satan will always make it so for the faithful. We do notice Thou hast kept the word of my patience, verse 10. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the earth to try them that dwell upon the earth. I've tried to summarize that with that brief sentence. They were commended for keeping the word of the Lord, 
for not denying His name, there was a little strength that may suggest that numerically the church at Philadelphia was reasonably small. But may we carefully note this. Just because they were small did not mean that they were to be reproved by the Lord. God, you see, looks on deeper than just the numbers. Sure, we want there to be a greater number numerically because, of course, we want more individuals to be walking the roadway to heaven. And we want more individuals to have a stern and loving desire for the Word of God. But a group can be small and yet faithful. Small congregations, perhaps, that you and I have known in these areas, though there may be only a handful by the standards of humanity, if they are faithful, if they love the Lord and do what they can with what they have, they are commended by the God of heaven. And so it was with the church at Philadelphia. We perhaps can appreciate from verse number 10 that when the Lord made the statement that they had kept the word of the patience, Jesus said, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation. There was a time of trial coming, and He says it would come on all the world. And yet the church at Philadelphia was spared. They were safeguarded. They were protected, if you please. Might you and I notice from that this lesson. We at Pippin are small compared to many others. You and I may think of churches in Texas with tens of thousands. We can think of churches in Kentucky with thousands. We can think of churches not too distant from here with hundreds. But may we suggest again that if we are faithful, doing the works of God as He has commanded, and accomplishing what we can with what we have, we stand commended by God, and Philadelphia is a lesson to the same. Thus, may we never throw up our hands in disgust, saying we aren't large enough. We need more funds and we need more workers. Though we may pray for God's blessings that more may come and join the work as they learn the truth and respond in obedience to it. May we never cease to strive to do what we can with what we have. Though we mentioned it this morning, the talents of Matthew 25 remind us of the same. When the five-talent man did what he could with what he had, he was commended. And when the two-talent man did what he could with what he had, he too was commended. When the one-talent man did not do what he could with what he had, he was condemned. And so shall we be if we do not, in fact, follow the leadership and the guide of the church at Philadelphia. What can we do with what we have? God leaves that to our appreciation as we study the text of the New Testament. And we appreciate the need to evangelize, the need to be benevolent, and the need to edify. And when we are able to do these things as God has commanded, we too will be commended just like Philadelphia was. Finally, what was the blessing for Philadelphia? Behold, I come quickly, he wrote in verse 11. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. We learn an interesting lesson there. No person can make us be lost. You and I shall stand before God to give accounting for thyself. Let no man take thy crown, he wrote. The church at Philadelphia had accomplished it, but... If they were to live unwisely, following the teaching that's false, and allow others to lead them astray because they failed to judge by what was in the book, they, of course, would find themselves amiss. No wonder Jesus, on more than one occasion, 
in the book of John reminded them, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. Did he not say that in the 10th chapter of the book of John? And on this occasion, we notice the final set of blessings in verse number 12. Him that overcometh, there's our key word again, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven for my God, and I will write upon him my new name. The grandeur and greatness of that name to be written upon those that overcome, isn't it lovely to overcome, to think about the blessings that go with it? And the thunderous note that closes this is the church at, at, the church at Laodicea. And so it is. Let's look at the Laodicean church. Beginning in verse number 14 of Revelation 3, we find the church at Laodicea. Here is some very brief remarks. It was known as a wealthy city. In that ancient day, the wealth, in fact, was dramatic in regard to this city, positioned about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia. It was known as an impressive center for both textiles and banking. Even in that ancient day, when the money was present, the wealth often was able to be seen with it. Perhaps finally, of note, was a medical center positioned there. In fact, one of the finest places in the ancient world with eye salve that was recognized to assist and aid in the healing of some eye problems as you give thought to this church at Laodicea. I would ask us to notice what the Lord said to them. He did not tarry long before He brought to their attention some shortcomings. Unto the angel of the church and of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. We immediately notice He's the Amen. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the beginning of the creation of God, the one who is entitled to speak, the one who is entitled to address you, Laodicea, the one who is the, so be it, the great one of God. And so it is. What did he have to say to the church at Laodicea? Commendation or reproof? Perhaps we can easily remember about Laodicea. And so it is, verse number 15, the Lord said, I know thy works, just as he had told the six previous ones. But now, without any delay, he says, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The church that was lukewarm, the church that wasn't cold, they weren't completely dead, but they weren't hot either. And so it was to them, the Lord said, I will spew thee out of my mouth. They made the Lord sick. They, in fact, made him so sick, he said, I will vomit thee, spew thee out of my mouth. We can begin to appreciate just a few of the thoughts that might be noted. We've often looked for the commendations when they were there. And we made note of them when they were appropriately given. But to Laodicea, no commendation was given. They were simply reproved immediately for being neither cold nor hot. What does the Lord then think about congregations that aren't completely dead, but they aren't completely alive either? They're lukewarm. 
There's a name that they claim to live, perhaps, but there is no manifestation of fervor, no manifestation of excitement, no manifestation of the heartfelt love for the Lord and His Word that ought to be present, no manifestation of the character of love one for another which should characterize the disciples, no nature of the beacon that ought to be that place and that for which they stand. It's a place that's just neither hot nor cold. They're there, and that's about all that you can say. Jesus, of course, here simply stated, you, you make me sick. You'll note what He went on to say in verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This church, you'll remember, was known for its wealth. In fact, an earthquake destroyed a fair amount of the city of Laodicea and the Roman government offered them funds and money to aid them in rebuilding and they refused it. They said, we will rebuild ourselves. And they did. Laodicea, it seems, was a church known for its independent spirit. We will take care of ourselves. We don't need anything from anybody we have enough wealth, enough power, enough might, and enough resources. And that kind of thinking etched its way into their religious life too. Apparently they didn't even think they needed the Lord. They, although they may not have admitted that, that's the way they lived. They thought they were rich and had all the things they needed. We don't need anything. But yet the Lord said, in reality, you're blind, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, and you're naked. All the things that they were unwilling to even consider is exactly what they were. Doesn't that highlight the need to ever be honest with oneself? We can deceive ourselves, can't we? They did. They thought that perhaps they were the shining light of the churches of the ancient world, and yet the Lord said, you make me sick. Today, could it be that some congregations who think that they are God's blessing to the human family, that they are God's blessing to the church worldwide, particularly in their local communities, and yet maybe they are not as they picture themselves. The Lord requires us in honesty to look into that word, James 1 verses 23 and following, that perfect law of liberty that really is as a mirror to the soul. How do you and I stand there? Honesty should tell us, and the Word will make it clear. It was to the church at Laodicea, the Lord rebuked them for their lukewarmness. The fervor and the ardency and the love manifested with excitement for the Word of God simply was absent. Is it any wonder that we are told in verse 18, the Lord gave them some counsel? What better person to give advice Sometimes in this earth, we go to our fathers for advice, to our spouses for advice. We look to others perhaps for advice. Who better than Jesus? He said, I counsel thee, verse 18, to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. They thought they were rich, but they weren't. Buy of me gold tried in fire that you may be rich, verse 18, and furthermore white raiment that you may clothe or be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. What a startling picture. Here was a church who thought in their wealth that all was well, and yet in reality said, you're like a person, insufficiently clothed. You're shameful. 
You're one who really does bring reproach and shame on what you stand for. You need to buy of me gold tried in the fire and some white raiment to cover your nakedness. I wonder how the church in Laodicea heard these words when their messenger delivered it to them. Do you suppose they were shocked? Do you suppose their mouth fell open in virtual disbelief? Is He really speaking to us and about us? And yet the Lord knows the heart and He was addressing them as exactly what they were. There are times when the Bible hits each of us like a ton of bricks as the old saying goes. When we come face to face with the reality that that really is how I am. God knows I'm that way and this text is a straightforward command for me to change. How lovingly that we should hear those words, not in a defensive mindset, not in a mindset that we in fact ignore what the Savior said, but that we, like no doubt we can hope Laodicea did, that we take the advice of verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. As many as I love. The Lord didn't say this to Laodicea because He hated them because He hoped that it would drive them further from Him. He said it to them in love that they would hear and they would obey. No wonder verse 18 closes that they also needed some eye to anoint their eyes so that they could see clearly the status that they actually had and that they might respond in the way that was right. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, verse number 20. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Jesus so tenderly and lovingly invited Laodicea to hear what I'm saying to you. Open the door and let me in. Don't be cold anymore. Don't be lukewarm. But be as you should be, on fire for the Lord. Ready to ever set a positive example before others and to strive to do what's noble and right in the sight of God. Verse number 21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in His throne. While the Lord was here upon earth, He overcame much. We remember how many opposed Him, how many in fact hurled insults at Him, how many mocked Him, and how many even blasphemed Him. And as the scenes of the cross surrounded Him, we even remember how so often He had the power to stop those proceedings but did not. He overcame all of it. You and I are commanded that we must do the same and every one of these letters assert that message. What about you and what about me this evening? As we conclude this lesson, we can do so with these four messages that we have seen this evening. To that church in Thyatira, there were problems because they were corrupt. They had allowed too much of these things related to Jezebel and others to in fact overwhelm that which was there and they needed to make some dire changes. And the Lord invited them to do the same. We learn, of course, the evil of false doctrine and how false living can do the same. To the church in Sardis, the church that was dead, they were told, remember and repent. And how needful that message is for any person in a state of deadness as well. We notice that church at Philadelphia commended because though they were weak and had a little strength, they had not denied His word and nor had they denied His name. Finally, the church in Laodicea, 
that church that was lukewarm. Neither cold nor hot, I'll spew you out of my mouth. But to them, that tender invitation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you will open the door, I'll come in and sup with you and you with me. And if you will overcome, you can in fact enjoy the great blessings of being with my Father, even as I overcame and sat down with my Father. Tonight, if, as we analyze, examine the nature of our life, are we dead like the church at Sardis? Are you and I perhaps corrupt like the one we noted at Thyatira? Are we doing what we can with what we have? The commendation to Philadelphia. Are we lukewarm like the church at Laodicea? If it would be of a need in your life to respond in a public way tonight, the Lord invites you to come just as He did the Laodicean church. That opportunity is before us. Brother Trail is going to lead us in that song in just a moment. But might we again assert that any time, night or day, if one of the elders or myself could be of assistance to speak with you, to talk with you, to study with you, don't hesitate to, to let that be known. But this is a convenient time. The baptistry behind me is ready. If you would wish to, in fact, confess and be baptized tonight, following, of course, the nature of your belief and your repentance, we would be more than honored to witness and to observe and to assist. If you have become a Christian, but you no longer are faithful, Perhaps some of these problems have plagued you. Come back to your first love. The Lord invites you just as He invited them to come back. And if we could be of help to pray on your behalf this evening, we would be honored to do it. We would only ask you let us know in what way we could assist. And to do that, while together we stand and while we sing. <laughs>